Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys. Thank you to our listeners for joining us again. And um, welcome to my guests today, uh, Nikki and Matthew Hi guys, I'll explain where you're from in a moment, but Nikki and uh, Matthew are both with Country Navigator. Now, if you are interested in international markets or expanding beyond your existing candidate pool and your existing client pool into new geographies, this one is going to be highly relevant to you and highly actionable. And I'm going to start by saying that Nikki will also be supplying a bespoke code to listeners of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, which will give you a free three-month trial. But back to, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, Nikki Samant-Jones is the Chief Revenue Officer of Country Navigator. And Matthew McLachlan is the Head of Learning Innovation Uh, for Country Navigator, who are specialists in cultural intelligence, diversity, inclusion and leadership. So listen up, audience, because there is stuff in here that is relevant to your candidates, absolutely to your clients and very usable for recruitment businesses and agencies. So, guys, if I could just start by asking you a little, just fill in a little bit about your background and how you came to be working in senior positions for Country Navigator. That would be helpful. Nikki, over to you first. Thank you, Alison. And uh, it's a delight to be here today with you and your listeners. Uh, And I'm hoping what we have to say today and the questions that we answer will be of benefit to them. But just a little bit about myself. So um, I grew up in India and finished my education there. And um, it was in a Blyton's influence early on very early on that sort of drew the drove the curiosity sorry um and and wanting to travel and wanting to see new worlds and wanting to experience new things and live in different countries you know uh, because it was the unknown Um, didn't have fairies in India really so it was all of that that drew me to the travel bug, really. And um, so I've lived and worked in six different countries, including Sri Lanka, Thailand, the Middle East for a while, and then finally to the UK, where I worked in um, facilities management and financial organisations. But then, um, by chance, a recruitment company got in touch saying, would you be interested with your multicultural background and all your travels, would you be interested in working for a cultural intelligence organization uh, and language training company at the time? And so it was a very quick jump into a world that was quite familiar, yet quite different from anything I'd done in, in a career sense. And, and over the last 12 years in the UK, I have been sort of working in this industry then, 
in different organizations. But finally, about two years ago, um, was again headhunted to Country Navigator by another recruitment agent to come and work for Country Navigator as the Chief Revenue Officer. My role here is extremely commercial focused. Um, so it's all about the strategy of the organization um, and responsibility for the PNL of the organization itself. Right. Thank you very much. What an interesting background. And how nice to hear about the significance of recruiters in your in your moves. Matthew, over to you. Briefly, how did you come to be in this position? Oh, yeah, I'm almost completely the opposite of Nikki. I'm completely through 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 luck, chance and fluke. Um, and it's, it's a huge irony that I've ended up in a learning company because I was a terrible, terrible student. Um, so about uh, 20 or 25 years ago, I did a degree in um, Soviet politics and Russian language, um, lived in Russia for, for eight or nine years, came back to the UK. Um, I had to live and eat somewhere, and I found a job very, very, very quickly in an insurance company. Um, I worked uh, in the under, under uh, I was going to say undertaking business, uh, in the um, underwriting business uh, for, for about six months and absolutely hated it. Really, really hated uh, insurance um, and found a, 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 a job in this business. I knew nothing about it all, cross-cultural communications. Ended up working there for, for some expatriates, uh, helping expatriates relocate from one country to another and loved it. Um, I'd been a teacher for, for nine years in, in Russia before that. And so, so bringing that, um, the experience of, of culture, and I've lived in about 16 countries by that stage, um, bringing that experience of culture and my, my passion, which I discovered later on in life for learning and, and really helping people to, to work and communicate effectively around the world. Um, Country Navigator, um, I got press ganged by Nikki about 12 months ago who in the height of, of COVID said, Matthew, you've got to come and work for us. And we worked together in the past in the previous company. Um, so she dragged me out of, out of what was at the time my ideal job at the University of Surrey and, and dragged me into an even more ideal job at Country Navigator, where I'm responsible really for, for all the learning content, um, for the learning strategy, and really ensuring that the content we're delivering to people meets the needs of real businesses and, and real people. Okay, thank you. And we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that content uh, later on. So um, a little bit of context here. I'm, I'm in the UK and I work with owners and, and leaders of recruitment agencies and businesses. And that's a very overcrowded, fragmented market. So f over a fairly long period, UK recruiters have actually been looking at new markets with very mixed success. Um, and that whole process was accelerated by the pandemic, uh, where suddenly we had situations of a, for example, a UK employment business providing a Latvian worker to an employer of record in the US um, to work for a German company. So all sorts of complications that I would never have anticipated having to advise on um, uh, previously. But it's, it's been not without its challenges. So even supplying to other English-speaking countries um, has often proved that there are subtleties that people hadn't anticipated. We can anticipate having to work with it in different time zones. We can anticipate needing, for example, a you know a, a US um, email address and so forth. But 
um, it's the subtleties of culture um, and getting that intelligence at the front end that I think has, uh, you know, is a really interesting area and one that people are becoming more and more aware of now. So, um, Nikki, could you start by, if I ask you a just a broad question, why did the world need a business like Country Navigator? You know, what issues or challenges had you observed that made you think, yes, we've got to provide a solution to that? Yes, Alison, there's quite a story, actually. Um, So Country Navigator is founded by Chris Crosby and Hans von der Linden. Chris is English, Hans is Dutch, and they met on their MBA programme in Paris about 30 years ago now. And uh, it was part of their sort of research into, you know, and, and their business case that they were going to present for their MBA. And having observed how multiple nationalities had come together, you know, learning and working together for the 12 months that they were there, they came to a quick realization that, you know, understanding yourself is really critical before you can understand how others perceive you. And that has so many connotations on how you collaborate, how you build trust, how you give and receive respect and feedback, etc. So, and, 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 you know, you'll have seen it in, in the public arena these days, everyone from Olympian Matthew Syed to the England manager Gareth Southgate have been writing about cognitive diversity or diversity in thinking. But I think Chris and Hans have always been at the forefront of this issue. And that idea that they sort of, you know, had back 30 years ago has culminated into the creation of Country Navigator. So the business is about 28 years old. And uh, it's fantastic to see that the world still has a need for it, even more so now, post-pandemic, than ever before. There is power in, you know, diversity in thinking and in cultural intelligence. And you can actually just connect the lines directly to profitability and innovation in business. So it has an incredible impact. Um, you ask, you know, what's some of the issues and challenges that I've observed that I wanted to help with? I mean, having lived in different countries, I, I can think of one instance quite quickly, right? Um, adapting to the UK has <laughs> been quite a challenge. Having come from what I call personally, and it's not a clinical word for it at all, softer cultures, right, compared to the West. So if you take Asian cultures, for example, right, my parents raised me to not challenge things that are taught at school or, um, you know, at work. Um, It's a very hierarchical culture in India. You do not question your line manager. You might grumble about it, but you do not question it openly in front of people. And I I still remember my first role um, in a big financial um, company in Canary Wharf, kind of noticing that things weren't right, knowing that I had the answer, but my cultural tussle with myself to not wanting to speak up and say, look, it's not right to my leader, right? And having learned over time that it was okay, it all depended on how I communicated it. So I think that's the thing that people don't recognize about cultural intelligence. We all have it. We just don't know how to flex it always. And I think that can be learned. So that's what I want to do for people. And and with your recruiters, it's the same thing, right? You you mentioned about, you know, recruiting someone for Latvia to work for someone which is a US address company, but German. 
the, the cultural intelligence required if that person, whoever the candidates are, from picking the right candidate that will be able to flex their cultural intelligence all the way through to making sure that that candidate is successful in the interviews as well as later on in their role, it all requires cultural intelligence. And I hope that we can help support your recruiters with understanding that better. Right. Okay. So that gives us a feel. Thank you, Nikki, for what cultural intelligence is. It's um, uh, about the the differences in how you might communicate the same content in different cultures, um, and you can you're saying that you can actually show that makes people more successful if they understand it fully. Okay. So, um, Matthew, over to you. How do these issues affect recruiters? Do you think? I mean, I, th- I think the first thing to say is, is I agree with what Nikki was saying earlier on, that culture's invisible until you come up against it, until you come up a, a, against a, a significant difference. And one of the biggest challenges, and I, I do actually feel sorry for, for recruiters in many ways, they've got to solve this challenge on behalf of the, the, their, their clients that they're working for. But because cultural values are, are so different, what that means is that a US company, how they interpret confidence or credibility or trust would be very, very different from how, for example, a, a Ghanaian would or, or a Bahraini um, or, or a Russian. I um, I was working for a company many years ago, many years ago, about eight or nine years ago, before COVID seems a long, long time ago. Um, and they were trying to uh, localise all their talent. They wanted to have the senior talent in their organisation um, as, as Ghanaian. It was a joint venture between Ghana and Britain. Um, and they had this conscious decision. They wanted to employ a, a Ghanaian chief executive. They sent out a, a British um, headhunting team to go and sh- interview the shortlist of about 10 candidates. And they came away empty handed. Uh, and in their report back to, to the, the HR team responsible for, for the appointment and said, we just can't find anybody who's credible for a chief executive. When they went in and did a bit more of a cultural analysis, we were able to identify that in Britain, as any recruiter knows, if you want someone to in a senior position, they've got to make lots of eye contact. They've got to talk up their achievements. They've got to have a strong handshake. And they've really, really got to exaggerate almost what they can do with the company. It's just standard practice. In West Africa in particular, um, a firm handshake is really aggressive. You're trying to assert dominance over the person. Um, eye contact, extensive eye contact, it's a challenge. Um, it's challenging someone to say, go on, go on, take me on then. Um, a bit like going out to the pub on a, on a Friday night with, with a baseball bat. Um, and similarly, exaggerating or playing up your achievements is immodest and rude. So if you go out to Ghana to recruit senior positions with a British mindset, you're not going to find anywhere. Similarly, if you come from Ghana to the UK to find senior talent, you're going to think these these British, they're extremely aggressive and rude, not the right fit for us at all. And so trying to recast what you consider normal, what you consider appropriate, and and re-examine what actually makes that person a credible. Um, So you've got to rethink your approach to those, those very, very important concepts. Hmm. Okay, so I would guess then that um, if you've got, uh, you know, say a potential hirer who needs that education about what 
to expect from people from a different cultural background. There might also be impacts in terms of what they can expect from a candidate uh, in you know through an application process. So, for example, you know, are there are there, for example, uh, some countries where asking someone to do to do a psychometric questionnaire would not be appropriate? That kind of thing. Uh, I don't know about appropriate. It's almost impossible to do them in Germany. Um, the works councils in Germany do not like psychometric testing of any kind, shape or form. Um, for those who don't know, works councils are are like trade unions, but on acid. Um, and within an organisation, the trade council um, has a voice on all policies, um, on all uh, activities that the company um, creates. They usually have a place on the board as well. Um, but psychometric testing in Germany is a big no-no. OK, so um, let's let's just narrow in on, on what practically Country Navigator does to help in these situations. Nikki, um, could you talk us through how the system works and and what it won't do would be helpful as well? Uh, absolutely. So just, just to be really clear, because we get asked this question multiple times by HR teams at the corporate clients that we work with, right? Will Country Navigator help me select the right person for an international role? Uh, no. That's not what it's intended to do at all. But what it does for individuals, for candidates that you would like to put forward, and I'll give you a concrete example first and then walk you through what the platform can do uh, for your, your audience, right? So let's say you've got three or four different candidates that you've shortlisted and you're going to set up interviews with your end client. Now, that could be an international client that could be a local client in the UK. There are benefits to both because I think cultural intelligence and I think a lot of people sometimes misunderstand it and think it's only relevant when you're working across borders. Cultural intelligence um, is about being able to effectively look at a situation, understand what's going on in terms of the communication and being able to flex your personal style to be able to do multiple things, uh, to adapt, to perhaps blend, to co-create something, etc. Right now, so that means within the UK, and we know how multicultural the UK is, but we also know that no two English people are alike. For example, right, each person has a different way of doing things in an interview, for instance. So what? Country Navigator can do for your recruiters in allowing them to prepare these candidates for the interviews is look at their personal style. So how do I like to do things, right? So we have the World's Prism Profiling Tool. It's a cultural profile, and it's a series of 45 statements that allows you to understand how you like to do things at work. There are nine cultural dimensions in total, including how you like to communicate, how you make decisions, whether you like to take risks or you're more risk averse, and how do you perceive time among others, right? All of these impacts on how you like to do things at work, how you build trust, how you build relationships, how you collaborate, etc. So what it does is for a candidate who perhaps, let's say, has an explicit style of communication. So let's say explicit means they're very much to the point, their communication, it doesn't involve giving too much detail or context. It can be perceived as direct. If they are being interviewed 
by a group of uh, a panel of people, perhaps, who are less explicit in their communication style. And you can get that when you're at an interview quite quickly. Then being very direct and not giving enough context to someone who has a style different to yours is going to be seen as a candidate that's not right for this role, perhaps, right? Because we're all looking for people like ourselves, whether we like it or not. And we like people who communicate like us or, you know, are able to match our style almost. And so this can give a real advantage to the candidates. Step two, there's a lot of learning content. I think one of the big challenges perhaps recruiters are facing right now is they need to show diversity in their recruitment, right? Uh, Their clients are demanding it, et cetera. Now, because we are all about cultural intelligence, inclusion, and leadership, we have learning pathways which are video-based that your candidates can work through in their own time. They're bite-sized. They're no more than five minutes at a time each video. And they can look at some of the critical things that are going on in the corporate environment today that's really important to HR and to recruiters. And in general, when they're at work, should they be successful in the role as well? So, you know, they can learn cultural intelligence. They can learn more about inclusion, including things like microaggressions um, and leadership, you know, transformative leadership, etc. And then step three, we also offer live learning. So we have expert multilingual coaches across the globe that can support people with live learning. So it's experiential, it's group performance coaching, we do masterclasses, et cetera. Now I'll share a URL at the end of the, 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 the podcast and hopefully people will be able to look at our website and have a quick glance at what we do. We also specialize in global mobility, right? And um, one of the big challenges for organizations is when they find the right candidate, if they do need to move them across borders, and um, people have to move with their families sometimes in toes. And the success of that assignment really, really hinges on the family and the assignee getting the right support. So we've got highly detailed country guides, we've got national cultural profiles, um, generalized cultural profiles, and ways of working with these target countries that can also benefit your candidates. So what we're offering is emotional and psychological support almost for the assignees to help them prepare and help them understand what are some of the phases that they'll go through for culture shock. Uh, these are like honeymoon, disillusionment, culture shock, acceptance, and adjustment. So I hope that helps understand what we do. Right. So just to try and and make that specific rather than abstract, it might include, for example, oh, um, you know, details about um, how how time specific another culture is and that if somebody says they'll get it to you tomorrow it doesn't mean you can sue them if they you know if they don't in some cultures is it are we talking about that kind of content i'm laughing alison because it brings me to my own experience right that's absolutely correct so i worked in the middle east and i still remember asking an individual in my team to deliver something so i worked for a british hotel chain right which had hotels all over the world and in Oman where I was and I remember asking my Omani colleague in my team we need to get this to the head office by x date do you think that will be possible and his response was inshallah (laughs) and it drove me nuts (laughs) which you know 
Only later did I understand with my cultural intelligence hat on, time is fluid in the Middle East. You cannot buy time. You cannot make time. You cannot have time. So putting a deadline across and expecting people to reasonably say, yes, it's going to be delivered was something that they couldn't really possibly conceive that they could agree to. And so there was a different way of checking that a deadline meant a deadline when I worked with my team. So it's exactly that. So, Nikki, that's fascinating. And I'm sure anybody here who is now, say, recruiting across geographic borders would start to see the importance of this you know, cultural understanding. However, if somebody is just in the UK and operating in the UK, how is this actually relevant to them? It's a great question because we did allude that it is not just about borders. It could be two English people having different ways of working. So take, for example, your attitude to risk, right? So you could be risk averse. It's a cultural dimension, um, as I mentioned before. You could be risk averse or you could be more risk prone, right? And I'll give you an example because, again, having worked in the financial industry, retail banking as a generalization tends to be risk averse because it's so strongly regulated, right? Because you've got the FSA, you've got governance, et cetera, policies in place, and you get fined each time you break one of the regulations. Bringing in someone from investment banking, which is far more risk prone, into retail banking can prove quite a challenge because the natural instinct of an investment banker is to go push risks as much as possible. So you can see here where they'd have to adapt, perhaps, and use their cultural intelligence if they're working with people who are more risk averse to recognize that their team might not be willing to push the boundaries as much as they want them to. And it'll be probably a slow journey to build trust and get them to push those boundaries and become more risk prone. Right. Okay. thank you. That is really helpful. And I can see that actually in any organization, therefore, having that understanding of yourself um, uh, is going to help working relationships become much more functional when very often we might just write somebody off as not business-like or not efficient or something along those lines. Okay, so staff retention and staff engagement has become central to all business leaders now, recognising that recruitment is is just one part of building a a successful um, organisation. So, Uh, In this era of more scattered and remote workforces, Matthew, what initiatives have you seen to support this engagement and retention outside of your systems and services? Um, You're absolutely right. Engagement and and belonging, if you like, is is one of the sort of central themes that particularly that we learned through through COVID and and, and the pandemic. Um, I guess it's become more sort of cemented now that we're sort of taking stock and, and looking back and, and seeing what it's done, it, it's all about that, that dangerously political word inclusion. Um, and when we're at work, we want to feel that we're valued, that we're respected. I think particularly the, the COVID pandemic saw this huge, uh, almost overnight, companies to change from talking about resilience in their workforce to well-being. Um, and I, I don't know if people can remember right at the beginning, that very, very first lockdown, um, business leaders were telling their, their employees, their workforces, they needed resilience, that we need to build resilience into our workforce. And basically what that is saying that as you as the employee, 
you've got to do something about it. You've got to do something about the fact that we're putting this huge workload onto you. We've got to, you've got to do something about the fact that the world has changed overnight. And the business was, was um, almost absolving themselves of blame. As the, the lockdown progressed, and I think we saw it pretty much before that first summer in, in 2020, suddenly people realized the importance of well-being. And I think for, for a recruiter, it's particularly important. After all, you want to get a reputation for placing people who hang around. If you're placing candidates who, who leave after three months or six months, um, then let's be honest that, that your client is going to go somewhere else. They want people who are going to hang around, who are going to do a job, who are going to stick and who are going to make a difference in, in the company. Um, and so it's really, really important that, that we set realistic expectations, both from the employer's perspective, but also from the candidate's perspective, about what, in, what in inclusion means, what engagement means. And that's, again, it comes back to, to, to what Nikki was talking about, understanding the difference in cultural values. If I've been set up to, to if I've been used to working in an organisation that is very, very risk averse, if I come into it with my risk taking perspective, the fact I love taking risks, those first couple of months are going to be a real challenge for me. They're going to be really difficult for, for the team to adjust to me, for my colleagues to adjust to me, but for me to adjust to them. I'm not going to feel as if I belong in this organisation. Now, we're not asking people to, to get rid of all those amazing characteristics and traits that make them who they are as a professional. But I do think we need to be able to say to them, look, be aware that this organisation or this team or this person you're going to be working with closely has a very, very different approach. You'll need to be able to, to find strategies to be a little bit more careful to, to manage that difference. Because at the end of the day, if you manage the difference well, that person will hang around they'll give much, much more value into the business and you'll benefit from, from the cognitive diversity, that diversity of thinking that Nikki was talking about earlier on. And we know very well that if you have high cognitive diversity, there's an impact on profitability, there's an impact on creativity. Right, okay, and that's and that's quite well documented, isn't it? Thank you, Matthew. Um, could I just... Add, Alison, so one of the things that recruiters, I mean, the duty of care is not just to the client, it's also to the candidate. And a lot of the diverse talent now really wants to know, is an organization truly diverse, right? Do they believe or is the diversity policy and the inclusion policy just a tick box exercise? And that's another area where I think the recruiters really need to have cultural intelligence of themselves as well when they're talking to clients to be able to ask those questions to really help a candidate assess as well. Because part of that well-being thing for diverse candidates, culturally diverse candidates now, is making sure that they can bring their whole self to work. Uh, and that is their race, their color, their gender, their generation, their ethnicity, all of that. So I think it's a very strong tie these days between inclusion and well-being. Okay. And it's a it's an interesting point and one that we've raised on, on earlier recruitment leadership podcasts is that diversity is not a matter of compliance. It is actually a, a massive bonus to your organization's efficiency, to its success, and even financially it's it's all quite well documented. 
That said, now there will be recruitment business leaders listening to this podcast now who are thinking, okay, all sounds great. And I can see it could also, you know, having this level of cultural intelligence could contribute to to retention and engagement in my own business. But, Nikki, can I just push back and say, with the best will in the world, is it really possible for business leaders to accommodate the preferences and style of every individual in their organization? It's a great question. One that I, you know, actually agree as a leader myself that it's a very difficult one, right? Because I think to myself, is it fair that a person in my team is allowed to leave early because they need to collect their child from nursery, for example, right? But it's not okay if somebody else is transparent enough to say they need to book some time out to go to the gym, you know, uh, who decides and, and, and who says what's important to the individual? To a person who doesn't have any children, the gym is really important. It's really, really critical to their well-being and mental health. To someone else who has a family, it's really important to be there to pick their child up. You know, I think that the, the, the balance here is to become more outcome-focused, not process-focused. Um, I'll give you an example from my own personal life, right? I love working late into the night after sort of eight, nine o'clock in the evening because it's really quiet. I've got my son to bed. We've read together. We've done things, you know, together and it's lovely. And I've given him 100% off me rather than kind of fighting with work and him to try and make time for both. And I find that when it's quiet, I'm lucky my husband works shifts as well, which which helps a little bit, right? I, I'm at my most creative because it's so quiet. It's lovely and I can really focus on the task at hand. So, you know, I think for an employer, there are great benefits to having diversity, particularly cognitive diversity. An example of that is think about, you know, if you had six robots and you asked them to do something or you asked them a question, they would all give you the same response because they don't have cognitive diversity. However, six people, if you pose that same question to, they probably will all have a different perspective. And it's from that diverse perspective that innovation and critical thinking emerges. And it's proven that organizations with more inclusive, diverse workforces, they outperform their competitors by nearly 35%. Right. Interesting. And and I would uh, absolutely I want to agree with everything you said. I am just thinking about some of the practicalities, though. You know, if I have a policy, for example, about, um, you know, uh, uh, attendance in the office or about dress, for example, then accommodating everybody within that um, is, is sometimes in effect going to just completely disable the policy. Um, and presumably I had that policy in order to achieve a business goal. Yeah. So I, it is a really complicated one, isn't it? Um, question back to Matthew, if I may. Matthew, why should recruiters care about diversity in their own businesses when and that of their clients, when actually the truth is a lot of clients are still saying, just send me CVs that look like people like me. 
Yeah. They want to see somebody who's already doing the job that they're trying to recruit for, who has got a recognizable career history, something that looks similar to their own, you know, career advancement. Um, and if just to exaggerate that for a moment, for a lot of people, they're looking at a CV and they're thinking, right, I want to see someone who doesn't have gaps in their employment, who has um, had a linear progression in their career to this position, not gone off and done different types of roles. And that's really describing a model of a sort of 1950s man who could, number one, completely prioritise their career because their the wife was at home. Uh, number two, who never was going to take um, career breaks because they never had any other really leading priorities other than earning and so forth. So what would you say to recruiters who get those demands from their clients? Oh, it is the most co- one of the most common questions we come across. Um, and I, I don't know who, I, who, who to attribute this, this very simple anecdote to. But if we never did anything differently, we'd still be lying on our backs in nappies drinking milk from bottles. Um, and one of the huge things about diversity is it gives us the opportunity to do things differently and therefore better. Um, but I suppose the, if you look at it from a different perspective, if you don't care about diversity, you're dismissing 75% of the talent pool. And it's, it's common sense that if you choose between two people, you're going to have a less good option than if you're choosing from 10 people. Um, and if you're only looking at, at people who look at, look like me, middle-aged white men, I've got a nice linear career progression. Um, I don't have any significant gaps in my CV. Uh, my CV is particularly well-written, I think. It doesn't have any spelling mistakes in. Um, I've had someone look at it to make it look attractive. If you're looking just at that, you're missing out on the people, I mean, I'm going to pick on, on Nikki here, who's an amazing salesperson. Don't choose me to be a good salesperson just because I look the part. And I can't sell a thing. I, I, I can't sell a dog to my wife. She doesn't want a dog. I want a dog. We're not getting a dog. Um, Nikki's the person you want, but she doesn't look like me. Um, and she doesn't have, a diff- doesn't have the same background. Right. Me. So actually, one of the most important drivers behind looking again at diversity and bringing on uh, being aware of cultural um, differences is actually down to this this sort of um, massive candidate shortage that lots of markets are currently experiencing yeah I mean 120,000 people left work their jobs this month uh, because they felt they weren't included in um, in their workplace right and that's really going to make it hard isn't it <laughs> okay so country navigator then offers the World Prism online assessment, the on-demand learning pathways, and then live learning about other cultures. And it will essentially make, if you're a recruitment business leader or you're talking to your clients, it will make their business more effective and help with retention of staff. Now, Nikki, you very kindly... Um, offered to give listeners to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast a access to a unique URL, which will give them uh, a free trial, I think. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, Alison. Can you tell us, how, uh, Nikki, we're all agog, how to access this? And if they want to contact either of you directly to discuss it, 
um, how they could do that as well, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the URL to use will be www.countrynavigator.com forward slash three month trial so i'll i'll post it on on the chat as well alison so somehow you can print that on onto your podcast listeners will be able to access it but also they can contact us directly either matthew or me on inquiries so en uh, inquiries not inquiries so with an en at countrynavigator.com and what we're offering especially to your listeners i mean we do a a demo trial for two weeks normally and you'll find that on our website but what we're offering as a special to your listeners particularly is a three-month trial for free so they can have time i know recruiters are overwhelmed i know their clients are overwhelmed but they can have three months to look through some of the content and hopefully take that first step towards developing greater cultural intelligence and inclusive behaviours. That is an exceptional offer. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, really appreciate it. There's, I'm, I'm fascinated to go on and have a look at all the resources there myself. Uh, so Nikki, Matthew, Country Navigator, thank you very much for joining us. So that was www.countrynavigator.com forward slash three month trial. And this has been the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys. This is just an example of some of the issues that I work through with my clients. Um, and if you'd like to discuss uh, my services, you can contact me on alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. Nikki, Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Alison. It's a pleasure, Alison. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.